Today's episode of The Day Cheng Show is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. I've been using Sonos for several years, and I genuinely love it because it makes my life better when I watch TV or listen to music because it's like so easy to use and it's seamless with the app. Sonos is something I genuinely recommend, but something new's happened with Sonos. Have you heard that Sonos just came out with a new portable speaker? You can enjoy brilliant sound anywhere with Sonos Move, the durable, battery-powered smart speaker for indoor and outdoor listening. Check it out at Sonos.com. I will definitely have to check it out myself because I'm a big fan of Sonos. And now, The Dave Chang Show. The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. This week we have, uh, man, his career, I don't even know how to describe it. He's a mathematician, MIT graduate, gambling expert, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Jeff Ma. We'll get to him in a second uh, because his life story and what he does is so instrumental to. I think not just becoming a better gambler, but I think for a lot of the chefs or entrepreneurs that listen to this for their own careers, whatever it may be, a lot of people can listen to and learn from someone like Jeff Ma. In this podcast, we talk about kinds of bias, confirmation bias. There's like so many different things that prevent you from looking at the world in a rational way, in an objective way. And we talk a little bit about how that affects gambling, but also I think how bias changes our ability to properly understand the world culturally as well. And a lot of that is just looking at it with data. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about uh, in this sort of segment of My Opinion is Fact. A lot of people wanted me to talk about the SNL firing or the hiring of Shane Gillis And I didn't know what to say because I was upset, but I wasn't that upset. And there was a lot of outrage. And I'm not trying to say that. I I think the problem is, is larger and more systematic than this. It's all kinds of bias, quite frankly, about food. And if anything, hearing his opinions about how Chinese food, which is, I think, a larger conversation about Asian food in general— and MSG, and um, the very things that I think prohibit Asian Americans from having some sense of, uh, I won't say power, but there's a lot of cultural shittiness to fight through. I don't know. I think I've been dealing with it for so long, I wasn't surprised that it happened. But the reason why I think it's important that Jeff Ma is on this podcast is because there is hope right? And a lot of it is first and foremost, understanding the science and getting the data to understand this, which is why I've been such an advocate about the misperceptions and, and falsehoods based around MSG and Chinese food and the fact that no food should ever be pegged lesser because of its place in the world or where it's from, right? Everything can be delicious. You just got to have it with open eyes and an open heart. And I'm weirdly positive, even though it made me angry, the fact that we can have this conversation. I'm never excited when someone loses their job, right? And I'm trying real hard to maintain some 
again, positive thoughts about this because that's just what I'm trying to do these days because there's been enough hate and hurt feelings rightfully spoken about this. And I hope that he learns from it. And I hope that a lot of people that a lot of people that I know that I'm friends with probably subconsciously or privately held similar beliefs. And I'm looking at this as a positive moment so future generations don't have to deal with this. Obviously, we're still going to have to deal with this. We have a lot of work to go. And I'm incredibly excited that we have Bowen Yang as the first Asian American cast member of Saturday Night Live, whether people like it or not. Like, hey, I've been waiting my entire life for this. So I was enthusiastic about the progress of Asian American cultural status. And a big shout out to Bowen. I don't know you. I'd love to talk to you down the road. Good luck with the upcoming season. And we can spend a lot of time being angry about something or we can do something about it. And I think the only thing that I can do and contribute is by presenting the facts. And the fact of the matter is Chinese restaurants, Chinatown are seen by the world if it is seen negatively because of all the bias that is out there. It's the same kind of bias that Jeff Ma is going to talk about in gambling, in any kind of number. It's all problematic. So that's why I wanted to wait. I wanted to wait to talk about Shane until we got Jeff Ma on because there's so many stupid ways to look at the world and there's no reason why to have uninformed opinions anymore. So that's why I'm excited to have Jeff on. I'll shut up so you can listen to this. And it's the beginning of a conversation. This change is going to take time. And uh, weirdly, I'm optimistic about it moving forward. So uh, here it goes. Here's my conversation with Jeff Ma. Welcome, Jeff Ma. I'm excited. I've been a big fan of yours. Uh, And Chris was like, hey, do you want to get Jeff Ma on? And he never even had to explain who you were. I was like, wait, how the hell? Don't even ask. Like, let's just get him on the podcast. So thanks for coming on. No, thanks. I'm a huge fan of yours too. I I think uh, Ugly Delicious is one of the best television shows I've ever seen in my life. It's like a very, it made me think a lot, which I really like. First of all, I love food. And then second of all, like the whole idea. And I think it's like uh, Ugly Delicious was very timely because it was like everything's happening in the world. And for me personally, like it was very thought provoking because, you know, I think like it was, as the kids say, it was in the period where I was getting woke. So, you know, and, and the idea of like almost seeing you go through somewhat of that, you know, those ideas using food as sort of a a way to explore those, those types of things was, was super interesting. Well, thanks a lot. Maybe I think a lot of what you worked on and, and written about maybe influenced Ugly Delicious. And I think a lot of it is, weirdly, I think, not necessarily using data per se, but looking at the facts right, without any bias mm-hmm. and trying to make the best decision from that. right. And a lot of what I think Ugly Delicious was is, why do we not like something? Yeah. And why do we like something? And what are the determining factors? Yeah. And trying to get enough evidence to actually sort out the bullshit. Well, the whole idea of like unconscious bias or like having that bias, like the episode around Chinese food, because my wife is, you know, she's from a very traditional white sort of upbringing and she's never liked Chinese food. But then I'll take her to like, we have Thai food or we have other, and she's like, oh, this is great. But I'm like, you know, this is not that different than (laughs) Chinese food, but it's sort of packaged differently. And just the idea of like the, 
sort of racial bias against Chinese restaurants in a lot of ways was so interesting. Like the MSG part, like all of those things, like, and it, it almost like gave me an understanding of why she doesn't like Chinese food, which is like a very sort of like personal thing to think about. Absolutely. And I love sports and I, I don't bet because I love sports and I love gambling too much on sports betting, but um, I love how data has changed something so much. And we've had a variety of people from the ringer that cover basketball and football and, yeah. and how analytics has ultimately changed how you should make decisions. And right. I don't think it should make the decisions for you. It should help increase your intuition or like augment it somehow. And, I don't know yet how to articulate how I want to talk about this moving forward with food, but I think that there's some way that all the things that people think that are not delicious, but are delicious to another group of people Mm -hmm. have to have a better explanation, right? Like MSG is a perfect example, right? Like what's the fucking reason why people don't like MSG? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that like, I remember the first time that I had like uh, ramen, you know, like cheap ramen, and you look at what's in the ingredients of a ramen flavor pack, and you see like MSG or you see MSG all over ramen, you know, the old cheap ramen. And so I was like, oh man, I I don't want to eat that anymore because it's MSG. That's bad for me. But I don't know. It's like MSG just got a bad name and it's hard to say why, right? Right. But if you actually look at the data, it tells you otherwise. (laughs) There's no evidence that suggests that it's actually bad for you and you can't be allergic to it or you would die because it's a non-essential glutamic acid and your body needs that to survive. So it's a lot of that. And I see a lot of that bias in sports and how you got your start. A lot of this was sort of just like gambling, like the urban myths that sort of are attached to so many things that how we navigate the world are just patently false. Yeah. I mean, I think that we like to like understand things in narratives and like often you know, you can see that, you know, narratives drive the way that people describe how something happened in a game. And what analytics did was it exposed the fact that these narratives are largely untrue, right? And so that's why I think the analytics movement in sports has been so important because it's changed the way that it, it should. It hasn't really changed the way that people watch sports. It should change the way that people understand, like, what's a good play or what's a good player. So, I mean, like, the you talked about basketball. I mean, the perfect example of analytics impact on basketball is just the three-pointer, right? Which is the biggest no-brainer in the history of mankind, right? Three is more than two. So obviously, three-point shots, if you can shoot them effectively, are going to be more efficient than two-point shots. And then the most efficient one is the corner three, and the data would show that. And, you know, you even look at, like, early Popovich teams were ones that were really good at shooting threes or defending those corner threes. So I think, you know, like, data just helps us understand things in ways that, like, we don't necessarily understand them already. What is it about human nature or culture that prevents people from embracing this? Because is there any basketball team that doesn't embrace data anymore? I mean, like, are they just allergic to it? I don't, I think at the basketball level, everyone has it at some level. Baseball for sure. Baseball. But you know, like you would be surprised though, because they still do, coaches still do really silly things, right? And, And a lot of it is because just what you said. It's like human nature, right? We want to believe what we believe, right? We don't want to believe what something else tells us. And doing data and analytics is hard. You need to actually do work to figure it out. So we'd rather just go with our gut. And then the other problem is that if there are strategies that come out of the data analytics that are unconventional, right? The, the classic like Benjamin Disraeli, this quote is that, you know, history will teach you that it's better to fail 
conventionally than it is to succeed unconventionally, right? This idea that right. doing something that's, especially in the, the, the coaches thing is also too, this just misaligned incentives, right? They don't really care about winning more than they do about keeping their job, right? And at the core, they make decisions to keep their job. Ultimately, some winning will help them keep their job, but sometimes they're thinking very short-term and it's more about self-preservation than it is about winning. That's from a general manager's perspective. I think maybe not embracing analytics or doing something new, I find from a fan's perspective, from an athlete's role, they don't embrace doing something they should do because it doesn't look cool. Yeah, I mean, well, like the classic case of, uh, you know, Andre Drummond should be shooting free throws like granny style. He could be making a lot more of them, but refused to do it because it didn't look cool. So, Or like someone like Nick Nurse, who wasn't in the league and shouldn't have been a head coach or got his opportunities coaching his team to play a box and one and these high school defenses. But no one in the NBA would ever have played those defenses because it's just not what you do, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, unconventional is, that's probably, you see that all the time in cooking, right? It's like unconventional bucks the trend and people don't know what to do with it. Right? And that's why I was, I'm so excited to have you on because I, uh, I don't have a full grasp of everything you do, but following your career, I love anyone that's tried to have a better understanding of how to make better decisions, particularly yeah. in say something I love like sports. But in food, to me, the ultimate decision that I see time and time again is, and you talk this in a variety of things in your, your, your talks you do and your books is you have the right data, you know what to do, but you don't do it because you think that, as you said, like culture or your intuition is telling you ototherwise. And there are too many restaurants. It's like a mathematical fact, right? The, I think the most recent data is what like 90, 90% of all restaurants go out of business in the first year. Right. Then 99% of those restaurants that survive go out of business within five years. It is like the dumbest business to possibly be in. But why, why is that? I always wonder this because people always say like, oh, restaurants are a bad business. And I'm like, well, are they though? Because like what we do in Silicon Valley, that's like shitty business. You have to like figure out a business model. You got to like convince, I mean, like it's a whole deal. You don't like, it's food, right? Like, I mean, I understand that you have like, assets that are like rotting or whatever. And like, that's the biggest issue that, that that's <laughs> hard to control, but generally like, it's not, it's an understood business model. Like it's, well, I think the reason why it always fails besides just everything that can go wrong in restaurants will always go wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. There's too much human error. Right. And unlike Silicon Valley or say uh, the financial services business, it's hard to motivate someone with a giant, there's no giant bonus at the end of the year. There's nothing to look forward to other than one's own integrity. But I think that one of the reasons why restaurants fail is they're undercapitalized right off the bat. Two, let's just say they have everything. uh, Their checklist is right. They, they, They have everything ready to open a restaurant. They have a menu, all these things that are sensible. That to me is also the problem. They do it like everyone else. Right. And they don't try to do anything different. Yeah, I, I just always, I don't even understand why you do that. If you do do it like everyone else, you still have to execute better in mm-hmm. some capacity than your competitor. And every time someone opens up a restaurant, anywhere close to one of my restaurants, I mean, I have to look at that as a threat. I want to be neighborly, sure. But every time someone decides to eat somewhere else, that's one less dollar that's going into your mm-hmm. restaurant's pocket. You need to do anything you can to make sure that you have a competitive advantage over someone else, whether that's service, whether that's a one dish, whether that's the ambiance. I don't know, but 
there's so many restaurants that are just doing the same thing. Even if it's a different cuisine, they're still doing the same model. It's just a different paint right. color. And it boggles my mind. If you're going to fail, right? Like that example, um, I, I saw one of your talks, God damn it, where you're basically, and you, you talk about it a couple times where you're like, and I see this at the tables too, when someone loses on doubling down. Yeah. And you're supposed to. Right. And this is maybe my greatest pet peeve. I'm sure it's got to be for you too. Wait, someone would rather not control their fate right. and wait to lose. Yeah. Then so it's called a omission bias, right? Where we favor inaction over action when we think it might lead to harm. What, what? So the idea is like, if you have nine, like the classic case is if you have 15 and the dealer has a nine, what do you do there? You hit, right? You have to hit, right? But people say like, oh, well, in their mind, they play it out. And they're like, if I get a seven, an eight, a nine, a 10, a jack, a queen, a king, I'm going to lose right away. So I'd rather just stand and hope that they flip a low card and have to take a card and they bust. Well, if they don't and they've already made their hand, well, at least I wasn't the cause of my own demise. It's this kind of like classic bias we have in making decisions that causes us to make bad decisions. I've, yeah. It, nothing it is maybe at the top tier thing that gets me incredibly upset when I see it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because like I, I've equated this, I've talked to the story on my speeches about how that lesson was like an important lesson when my mom had a stroke, because when she had a stroke, you know, she was still in great shape before she had the stroke, but the stroke was pretty debilitating. And the doctor gave us the option of either operating or of just doing nothing. Right. And I said, well, what are her chances of surviving if we do nothing? And he said, well, they're 22% chance to survive past 60 days. My mom was only 71 when she had the stroke. And I'm like, that's a ter- those are terrible odds. Like, what are our, what are our other options? And he said, well, actually with your mom in the shape she was, we would suggest you go in and you, maybe you operate and we take the blood clot out and proactively relieve pressure on her brain. And like, hopefully this will make her brain recover quicker. And as he said this to me, I remember I was with my sisters and my dad. I was like, oh my God, this is just like hitting 15 versus nine in blackjack. And they were just like, this blackjack shit's gone to your head. But I really do believe that that idea of favoring inaction over action, you know, not doing that was a big, big lesson to sort of help us guide us through that decision. Well, that's an amazing story. Can you elaborate why this, I think is, if people can have a better understanding of this, because we're all guilty of it, when the data is in front of you and it's overwhelmingly telling you to do decision X that is a higher probability than decision Y. Right. Yet no one wants to do it because they think it's stupid. Right. You know, you had, uh, I think, Mike, Michael Schur, yeah. uh, and he was talking about how like being cool is one of the worst. Well, the enemy like of the, creativity. But that's, yeah. the, that's the idea, right? When you, when you, like using data isn't cool, right? Being a, being a nerd and crunching numbers, that isn't cool. But being like, Jack Welch and like this kind of rebel CEO who makes decisions from the gut. Now that's cool, right? And so that's what leads people to make those types of decisions and ignore data. There's so much more to that. I, I, I think I have to find a better way to explain this to my own cooks mm-hmm. and people that I'm grooming to be chefs because that's one of the biggest hurdles that I have to teach them is like, don't listen to your gut right? because it's going to be wrong. It's not that it's wrong. It's like, at a certain level, there needs to be more perspectives you need to see before you actually act on it. You should have as many dis- as much information as possible. Right. And I find inaction prevents people, let's say, in a kitchen from making mistakes. And if you don't make enough mistakes, you're not going to collect enough data. So I always look at it as like the more mistakes you make, the more data you're going to have, the better decision you're going to make over your competitor. Right. 
but it just hurts to make those mistakes. Yeah. But once you have it aligned, it's like, oh, the more mistakes I make, the more I'm going to win. Yeah. The more you should just fuck up, but it's so counterintuitive. No one wants to do well, it. Well, I think it's like if you can position things as experiments to people or as, a, as pilots and make them not feel like there's such a you know, gravity to their decisions, then, then maybe you can help them make more risky decisions. And I think the idea of like failure generally, just the word is so scary to people that it's hard to get them comfortable with the idea of failing. Have you ever asked why? Well, like, where did this stem from? I don't think it's in our human nature. I think it's culture that's teaching us this. I don't know. I mean, I think like, you know, I know you just had a, had a kid. I have, I have two kids and they're young. One is about a month old and the other one is about two and a half. And raising kids just gives you a whole new perspective on like what it means to even like, you know, I think we don't want our kids to fail. Like we're afraid that if our kids fail, that it's going to leave an indelible mark on them. We want to protect them from everything. And so I think if that's the case, then like your kids are brought up to really be afraid of failing, right? Afraid of making a mistake because, I mean, I was, you know, I'm Chinese American. My parents came over from Taiwan for college and my whole life was about pleasing them and making them happy. Like I I love them to death and I love what they've done for me. But one of the things they did for me probably poorly was make me have just this really, like all I want to do is please them, right? And so- Understanding what really makes me happy is sometimes challenging. And the idea of how we raise kids to be, how they deal with failure is probably an important thing about parenting. The interesting thing about, you know, failure or just like protecting people is there's only so much of it you can do, right? Like, and and at some level, you want to get someone comfortable with the idea that, you know, for me, I think gambling I mean, maybe maybe gambling is a good thing to teach your kids because you're going to lose sometimes. And you're going to like, basically, I often think about it, right? Do I want to teach my kids? Like, do I want to make them understand gambling? Do I make them understand the numbers? Or do I want to keep them away from it? But the idea that a lot of my lessons around failure are around gambling. Like, you know, I lost $100,000 in two hands of blackjack and, you know, had to sort of bounce back from that because the odds were in my favor. And I knew that over time I would win. But coming back from losing $100,000 is, is pretty hard at age 21. That must have hurt so much. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty devastating. It was like at Caesar's Palace. I remember it so well. I could like point to the exact table it happened. And it was like two hands of 10,000 that I doubled and split and then doubled again and then three hands of 10,000 that I, you know, doubled and doubled. And it was, you know, 50,000 each hands. And both times the dealer made, basically made 21. One was a backdoor 21. The other one was, a, you know, front door 21. So. And when that happens, are you looking like, how did that happen? Would you know how it happened? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you gamble long enough, you know, they, like Scott Van Pelt has his like bad beats. And like, if you gamble long enough and you're professional better at any level, you you're conditioned to know that those things happen and over time they even out. Like if you don't believe that, then you can't gamble. You'll go crazy, right? So again, like going back to this idea of like, how do you make people comfortable with losing and failure? Well, maybe maybe one way is getting them in situations like this where they lose. I love the, you you just equated positive parenting to gambling. (laughs) It's like the highlight of this podcast. (laughs) Because like sometimes I... You know, I'm a relatively Americanized Asian guy. But sometimes I explain to people, like, I know I'm Asian because of my gambling gene. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, I used to do this thing on, like, Fox Business 
where they would, you know, have me on this show called The Varney and Company. And I was doing it one day and they asked me, because they were talking about Macau and Macau had just passed. This was like way back when that, but Macau had just passed Vegas in terms of revenue at that point. And Stuart asked me, he goes, Jeff, why are, why are the, uh, why are Chinese such big gamblers? Right. And here I am like on live television, trying to like speak to the habits of like 1.4 billion people or whatever. And, you know, it, it is somehow in our, in our genes. And like, you know, what's so funny about gambling is like, okay, so I can't play blackjack pretty much anywhere, but I still like to go hang out in Vegas and, and I usually just play craps, right? And I know by the numbers that I'm going to lose in craps over time, right? But I still play and I still look at a table and I still, you know, look at the shooter and I still study, the, you know, all those stupid things that we do. How does he hold the dice and what, and I walk up to the table and I'm like, and one of the things about gambling is that you have to somehow suspend your disbelief and believe that there's some higher power that is going to help you through this and can buck the trends and can get you through, you know, the negative expected value of the situation. That's sort of core, I think, to a lot of Asian cultures with the sort of religious notions that they have is that there's sort of like a, a higher power that can get them through and that can give them luck, right? You have to believe in luck at some degree. Gambling in Macau is the most frustrating thing. Because it's all about gambling, right? Yeah, it's two things that are polar opposite that happen simultaneously. They treat it like a job, right. like a ruthless job with no emotion. Yet certain decisions are fueled by religious understandings right. of the world. Like I don't certain numbers yeah. that are important. In no, I'm going to stay on 13 or yeah. whatever. Some, I, yeah. That's why if I'm a Macau, I can only play Baccarat because if you play blackjack, your hand's going to get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> There's just like no, no way around it. Yeah. So you believe in that n- notion that other people at the table can influence the cards for you? <laughs> How do I not though? <laughs> when like, yeah, no one's playing. It basically is like completely random. No right. one's playing by the book. Right. When like someone, and you've seen this too, there's just like some number. Yeah. And you could have theoretically 10x whatever they're betting. Right. And no one, and you're playing third base, no one is playing by yeah. the rules. How do you not get frustrated? It, you can get frustrated, but the reality is that it doesn't have any, this is like a classic bias also, right? Because you will like, and people will come to me all the time and they'll say, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm, I, I've played blackjack a long time. I know when I'm at third base or when, when that guy's at third base and he doesn't hit the card that he's supposed to hit, then all of a sudden that card goes to the dealer and they make their 21. But, but the, what if you're trying to keep track of things? Doesn't that mess things up? Or can you still do that pretty easily? You can still do it, yeah. And and the thing is, what, what I was getting at is there's this thing called confirmation bias where we remember details that support something that we believe already. And so those people that come up to me, they're going to remember every time that that guy did something and it fucked them. They're not going to remember the times that he did something and it helped them because it doesn't support their theory. So even when you're playing blackjack, let's just say we go to Bellagio, we're playing, right. we're in a high limit room, sure. and then we have, I don't know how many, what, how large a bet is, and then someone just decides to like stand 11. Yeah. <laughs> it, it'll bother me because I'm human. It'll bother me if it hurts me because I'm human, but- well, standing 11 will just bother me because it's so stupid. Yeah, that's right? what I mean. And yeah, yeah, for sure. Like that kind of stuff. But I, I will I will for sure be angry. That's what, that's what I'm talking about is like the oh, just, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. what are you doing yeah, type of sure. shit. That, that drives me. And, and I it, only it, see that in Macau. Yeah. 
I mean, you see like the dump, like in Vegas, it drives me crazy if people don't take full odds in craps. It's like, take full odds. Like yeah. you have to take full odds. It's the only, the odds bet in craps is the only bet in the casino that the casino has zero edge over you. Zero. It has no edge. There's no reason that bet should still exist. So they're giving you that opportunity. You should always take full odds. Should you always bet against the table? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, you should always bet don't because the odds are slightly better. But I mean, I again, it's like- no fun. Yeah. It's way more fun to go on a run when, and, and <laughs> you know, I mean, like maybe if there's like three of you guys and you just want to be the dicks at the table and you want to bet don't and laugh at all the shooters and make a lot of money, that could be I a fun thing to do. I may know someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a world where contrarian betting is pretty fun. So you know, I, I almost always bet pass just because I think it's fun when it, when you get on a run and it is a lot of fun. It's, yeah, it's a it's a high mm-hmm. that is hard to replicate. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang show is brought to you by Discount Tire. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes the difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com, one word, to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. They'll get you taken care of. Today's show is also brought to you by Indochino. Indochino was founded on the belief that you don't need to spend a fortune on a custom wardrobe. If I'm dressing better, because all you have to do is ask my wife, it's because of Indochino. It makes dressing so much easier because of custom clothing. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear brand. I don't like shopping at all, right? Which is why I buy multiples of the same thing. And Indochino makes it so much easier to buy suits, shirts, and coats that are made to your exact measurement for a great fit. And you get to personalize all the details, including your lapel, lining, and your own monogram. The best part is that they are affordable. Almost all of their custom clothing is under $400 US. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more when you go to Indochino.com and enter Chang at your checkout. Plus, shipping is free. That's Indochino.com, promo code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more. This is an incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. You really have no excuses anymore to wear clothing that doesn't fit, and Indochino is responsible for that. And now, back to the show. Man, I could talk about gambling forever. I should not talk about it. Um, I sort of lost track of time of what the fuck I wanted to talk about because I could just ask about gambling. I told myself, I'm going to try not to talk about gambling because everyone asks you all this shit. Yeah, but a lot, I mean, people ask more about the actual blackjack stuff, right? Like you're asking more about, we're talking more about just the psychology Mm. of gambling and the notion of, you know, craps is so interesting because 
you know, the edge is small. The casino's edge is small, but it's, it's, there's still an edge, but we play it. And if you play it right, you can win, you know, not over the long haul, but if you can get good comps while you're there and everything like that, it can be close to, you know, even expected mm. value. And then you have a fun trip. And that's all we sort of want, right? One of the things that I'm working right now is I'm, I'm working with one of the biggest media companies around trying to help them think about what their sports gambling strategy should be in this legalized world. And one of the things I think a lot about is sports gambling as an industry. If it is so fixated right now, like a lot of the companies, the sports books are so fixated on their bottom line. They want to have the highest hold percentage, meaning they want to basically have the worst players and offer them the worst odds. And if that happens, sports betting is not going to flourish as an industry in the United States because people are going to lose, they're going to burn out, and it's not going to be something that people enjoy doing. But if you're able to, you know, it's the same thing. Like if you go to Vegas and you lose $1,000 in 20 minutes when you first get there, you're like, Vegas sucks. If you lose $1,000 over the course of the weekend and you have fun with your friends and you go to dinners and clubs and the whole deal, you're like, oh, Vegas is amazing. And like, it's not a big deal. So you want to create that same experience where gambling is is entertainment. And similarly in sports betting, I hope that we're able to create that in the U.S., like that same sort of feeling. Mm. I'm terrified of legalized gambling. <laughs> yeah. For a guy like me, which is why it's like, uh, it's just, I just can't do it. I mean, yeah. I, there was a year that I did it and it was just too much. It was like a full-time job. Yeah, it can be very uh, involving and it can get people really, like really addicted in like sick ways. And so it's... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves in the U.S. Worst bet I ever took was what? The last time the Pacers were in the Eastern Conference Finals with the Heat, and they were up 3-1. And I can't, I've already blocked out what the odds were, but that was the last real big sports. So you bet on the Pacers to oh, win yeah, that series? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Got it. I, I think I, uh, I won't even go down that road. <laughs> Fuck. Um, still, it just hurts me still. Right. Um, going back to the Vegas, because like Simmons talks about this too. It's... Um, they're getting rid of all the blackjack odds, yeah. right? Why are they, I know why they're doing this. Why does the average gambler not understand? Can you explain the yeah. six to five and three to two? Because so, I don't think a lot of people understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's big, right? It's big that they've moved from um, three to two to six to five. I think the reason they do it is because they can, right? And I think that the table games are generally, they're struggling a little bit because the millennials don't want to sit and play table games for a long time, right? Millennials are, are a little bit different. And so the notion that they have to get higher margin on the game of blackjack is why they're doing it. I think generally like people are really bad at understanding math and understanding odds and people are really bad at understanding like there's this classic thing that people are bad at understanding the difference between bad odds and really bad odds, meaning like that's why long shots and horse racing are always like really bad bets because like the odds may, might be, you know, 10 to 20 or 30 to 40 to one. And they really should be like hundred or 150 to one. And people think, cause they're 30 to one, they're like, Oh, this is, these are great odds. I'm going to win it all or win 30 when really this, this horse has no chance to win. So I think people are just bad at math. And that's why like the six to five people are like, Oh, what does it matter? If how often do I get, they'll probably say, how often do I get black anyways? What it's not like that big a difference. But like the edges in blackjack are so small, you know, like all those things, like that's the key to analytics and data is that everything matters, right? Like all these little things matter. And, you know, one of the things that always interests me is not necessarily like the, the core skills behind data analytics, but the actual reasoning skills that data analytics give you. And one of the reasoning skills is that little things make a difference, right? Because analytics is all about mm. little edges. And the idea that like, you know, like you see it in cooking, I'm sure, where 
like you go into a situation and like maybe someone that works for you doesn't do one thing or, or misses one ingredient. Or if you look at that and you say, oh, it's not a big deal. Then all of a sudden you have a culture where like little things don't make a difference. And we know they make a big difference. I always think about this in the kitchen and it's that Al Pacino line in uh, any given Sunday. It's literally a game of inches. Right. It, it it really is that much in a kitchen as well because when you add up all the mistakes that people make, right. that's what fucking ruins a service at the end right. of the night. And it's not one thing. It never is one thing. Everyone knows what that might be, but it's like this person didn't add much acid and then this person over here miscut the, the carrots here and then you construct a dish and it just fucking off. And I have nightmares over those small little differences. But going back to the six to five and three to two, and I'm more, you're right, I guess I'm more fascinated with the psychology of it. I'm upset because to other people, I'm like, do you understand that casino thinks they know you're dumb? They've already done the marketing on us. They're just telling you, we think you're stupid. Give us your money. Mm -hmm. So are you, uh, do you know the Phil Ivey story? The uh, yes. Baccarat story? I love story? it. That's yeah. like the best story. Especially yeah. the his partner. That yeah. was like the best story ever. So, I mean, the just to set it up, I don't know if you've ever talked about it on the podcast, but essentially Phil Ivey, I think the woman was actually the one that brought Phil into mm-hmm. it. And they found basically a hole in Baccarat where there were certain types of cards that were cut from the manufacturer in a certain way where you could distinguish different cards from the other. And if they were organized in a, in a way, you could basically beat Baccarat. And now they didn't cheat at all, right? And and they asked for certain things. They asked for there to be like a Mandarin dealer. So the Mandarin dealer would speak to the woman and the woman could tell her to organize things in a certain way. And obviously, because she's Asian speaking Chinese, it's maybe that she's just superstitious and that's why she wants to move the cards that way. Well, her and Phil won like what? Like 15 million or something like that from two different casinos. And then the casinos didn't want to pay them. And I actually was asked about this and then wrote an article for ESPN when I was working with ESPN on it. And one of my biggest points is that the casinos never publish like what the true odds of anything are, right? They don't, they don't publish like rules of engagement. Like they, they are the classic ones in subterfuge, right? So why should Phil and his partner have been clear and upfront about what they're, I mean, they, they didn't didn't break break the law. They just basically use the rules of the game and put them in their position. And and that idea of like advantage play is fascinating to me. And so the idea that like casinos can like ride on, be on their high horse and say like that we shouldn't pay them is absurd. Yeah. That whole story gets me mad that they didn't get paid. I don't even know where it wound up because I think they lost in court. But if you haven't heard of the story, you should go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. We'll talk about it now, but I, I just think it's amazing. It's an amazing story of how they beat the system. And basically the casinos are like, we look like idiots. We're not going to pay you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar, honestly, to like our story, right? Where we used teams to go into the casinos and, and win, right? And that was the thing I think that the casinos hated the most is that we worked as teams. Because as teams, you can be much more efficient and beat the casinos for a lot more money than you would as an individual. So I think that was the thing that bothered them the most. But again, like, we weren't breaking a law. Like we were just using our brains and devising a system that would win. And again, like to loop back to the sports betting thing, like there's certain sportsbook operators that are coming over from Europe that are notorious for banning winners and not allowing winners to, to continue to play. And they're doing that in the U S already. 
So it's this notion that like they're providing a game and you can beat that game and they won't let you play. It's like one of the most un-American things that there is out there. Are odds better in double deck? No, not usually because in double deck, typically they they make the rules much worse, right? They make the, and one of the things that they can do in double deck is they can like put the cut card up pretty high or sometimes back in the day, they literally would have no cut card and the dealer would just decide when to shuffle. Hmm. And dealers at that level, at that highest stakes, they're probably counting themselves. And so if the count's in your favor, they're going to shuffle. shuffle. And when the count's not, they'll just deal to the bottom. So, I mean, we did not play very much double deck. And a lot of the reason also for double deck is if you're really counting cards, your your bets can fluctuate a lot hmm. from hand to hand. And that can be a real telltale sign to the casinos that you're counting cards. So how does this all translate into... I mean, I wanted to ask you actually, like when you started the business 10Xer, and that had to do with um, applying data to non sports things, right? right? Mm -hmm. Are are there any companies that are actually doing that in terms of like data analytics for Uh, for employee performance? Yeah. Something I've talked about a lot on this pod. Um, So I don't really think so. I mean, I think that there was like back in the day, Microsoft was doing some stuff and it got huge backlash because it wasn't they were using it the wrong way and Microsoft probably wasn't the right company. I mean, I think Google does some form of, of analytics around employees, but I think that it tends to be more around human input, like meaning like, how do I get rated by my peers and that type of stuff? Um, no, I don't, there's still a, a lot of resistance to that notion, right? 10Xer, which I started, was supposed to be human analytics. The idea, like I always talk about and what we wanted to do was actually create stats for humans that they could use to understand their own performance or that they could use to motivate themselves, right? Like the classic story that I always talk about is like the Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire home run battle. When that home run battle happened, they were all chasing a number that all of a sudden Barry Bonds is like watching that. And he goes, you know what? I, I want that kind of adulation. I want to chase a number also. And, you know, he uh, changed his training practices at that point and and went was and, and did it and did it yeah <laughs> and so uh but they had that idea of like using stats to motivate yourself to be excellent was really what we were focused on and what we found is that like generally people don't want to be excellent like people are lazy and they don't want to use numbers to make themselves improve but i i think that this can actually happen in i know for sure the restaurant industry right it just needs to be gamified yeah. You know, like there was a company I know that was doing some stuff around like allowing the top waiter servers or whatnot to be able to pick in terms of metrics to be able to pick what shifts they worked. And that was like their version of gamification. And so, I don't know. I mean, like, I think the notion, I think it's going to happen at some point. I agree with you. I just don't know how it happens. Right. I thought about this a lot. All of those things are going to happen. I think the POS system and being able to like average out the the customer satisfaction per server to the point where you're going to have, these are the configuration of cooks that produce the best sales figures per day. This is the configuration of the servers, back waiters. I believe in the next 10 years, all that's going to happen, right? Right. It's going to be just like a sports team. I think the next level upon that, which is probably way out, is being able to observe game film of your cooks. Right. Because that's all I do. And I'm in a kitchen. I'm looking at just you know, it's the same thing when I, because I played high school football or just any sport, like golf or whatever, like you can see things that no one else can see. Like if I, when I watch basketball with Bill Simmons and his team at the ringer, like 
I don't see the things that they see. Right. Because that's all they've watched for years upon end. They have this sixth sense as to what, you know, a movement looks like. All I've done for 20 years is look at movements in a kitchen. And I can see pretty clearly, like, that's a problem. For instance, at one of our restaurants, someone decided not to melt down butter for a dish. They just were, like, adding it in. And it looked like it was part of this process that should have just, that was normal. But I saw something that was very problematic to me. And if I wasn't there, I don't know if I ever caught it. But if I caught it on film, I would have caught it for sure. But I can't spend the rest of my life looking at each cook's cooking from a CCTV perspective. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like this idea. When I, one of the companies I started was a sports company. And one of our early advisors was Bill Walsh. And I remember we were building a model using data to sort of like evaluate play success. It's like on first and 10, like how many yards do you need to get for it to be successful? Would you say? I think five yards. It's like four and a half is like the number. Right. And like, and we basically just did it out mathematically, like looked at all these plays and blah, blah, blah. And then, so I went to Bill Walsh and I said, Hey Bill, you know, like how many yards and basically his intuition matched the model perfectly. So there are people like Bill Walsh that don't need models and whatnot. And that's probably like you, when you look at a kitchen, you don't need the numbers, but there's other people that don't. So it's, it's basically like analytics and that type of stuff allows your intuition to be scaled, right? That's what you really want. That's what I want. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, again, like it just starts with data and figure out how to like collect that data in a scalable way, which is going to be hard, but it's possible. So when you say hard, it means and I've talked to people about like trying to create something around this. It's so individual to whatever company you're focusing on that it, that makes it impossible to scale the technology to actually do. So I would say nothing is impossible now because even with things like computer vision and whatnot, like you could probably create metrics around the way that people move around a kitchen and you could probably try to figure out some of these things observationally from data. I mean, there's ways now to collect data that there never were before. The problem is that so much of this data that that you're talking about is like, you can't even like necessarily say what told you to do that. You just could see it. And so how, how do you actually create data around that? I, I just think it's like a, it is a hard problem, but I, I think it's it's solvable if you if that was something that you really wanted to focus on. Um, going back to football, and I feel like I could talk to you forever because you 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 were like Asian American gambling savant, <laughs> <laughs> went to MIT, all these things, and now you do sports and gambling and all this other stuff. It's like the best podcast guest we've ever had. Um, it's something I've talked again to say, like Mina Kimes and other people uh, that cover football. Why is it that football? You have people that embrace analytics, and some people that are just like I refuse, or even. Still, like, why yeah. even run the ball on first down anymore? Right? Like, yeah, what, what, I, what is preventing people from I saying, I think like, it's like football is just the ultimate macho kind of sport, right? And that ultimate sort of, like, idea of, of we said it, it's, it's cool. Like, football, it's not cool to be a nerd in football. And, like, baseball, I think, very early on was embraced kind of nerds, right? Like they just got in, you know, Billy Bean and the money ball and it got in the front office. And even there was always like the cottage industry outside of baseball, like baseball prospectus, where Nate Silver got to start, all those kind of things. Those, those were all like statisticians and everyone was comfortable with that. Basketball, I think, because so much of what the analytics were showing mirrored what was happening on the court, like the first year that Houston was, was started to play really fast. 
I remember I, Sam Hinkie was with Houston at the time, and I said to him, and you know, I'm sure you know Daryl and Sam, and I, I said to Sam, I was like, Sam, you guys are playing so fast. Is that by design? He goes, I wish we could play faster. And it was because they realized that you know, three-on-three basketball was much easier than five-on-five basketball because there's just more space, right? And, and that's, you know, probably what their analytics told them. That's also what D'Antoni wanted to do. And like, you know, that, that was the sort of thing that made sense, you know, for them. I, I don't think D'Antoni was with them at the time, but, as, you know, that's what he believed too, right, at some level. And he may have just had intuition about it. But football, I think it's just been hard for people, you know, just like what you said, right? That was very nuanced, right? You're essentially saying that like, Running is inefficient. That's but what people know. But it used to know. be, hey, it's the, the the game's won at the trenches. You got to ground and pound. Right. You got to control the clock. Right. But when you study it, it's like, no, that's not true at all. You want to score as many points right. as possible. Yeah. All these things are so. That what you're asking, actually, and this is like going to be a, a segue. Did you did you follow Jeopardy James? I did. Yeah. So Jeopardy James, he's amazing because he's a sports better, but he's really an advantage player, and what that means is. He looks at a situation and figures out what the loopholes are, and then he gains an advantage by that. And what he did in Jeopardy, what's more interesting about what he did in Jeopardy is that he challenged convention, right? And he challenged it in a way that, like, you know, this game had been played many, many times, just like football, and many, many times had been played the same way. And all of a sudden, here was a new guy that was playing it completely different. And even when you watched him, it didn't look right. Like he's going to the, you know, the bottom of the board right away, and he's jumping down. He's double, uh, double, and he's actually doing true daily doubles. It was crazy, right? But he was doing that to basic because he figured out that there was a strategy that would give him a slight edge over everyone else. So that idea of of bucking convention is it's very very hard and. You know, even just like all the stuff in football about going for it on fourth down, it's still crazy that people don't go for it more on fourth down than they do, that people still punt. Punting is like the dumbest thing in the world. (laughs) You're literally giving the ball back to the other team without even an effort. And so there are very few situations that you really should punt unless you have an amazing punter. I love hearing this. And it gives me life when you talk about Jeopardy James. I just, it, these are the things that genuinely inspire me. Yeah. Cause I'm like, thank God. Thank God someone's fucking it up, right? In the best way possible. I guess I'm still stuck, right? Like one reason why I guess I studied religion, the furthest thing from mechanical engineering with MIT was not just because there were classes that I could wake up for, but I wanted to understand why someone was religious because I came from a very religious background. And one of the things that's never left is like, I think for me that there's still so much more to mine in why people refuse to accept this change. What is it about human nature that causes us to be allergic to anything that challenges convention? And I don't know why I'm so stuck on this notion, but I I constantly go back to this because I see a pattern in just about all parts of culture, right? I could talk about food. You name a restaurant. There are so many restaurants like the New York Giants, right? Right. Like, just doesn't make any sense to me, but they still do it. Right. There's so many restaurants that open up knowing they're going to go out of business, but they're still going to run the yeah. ball. It doesn't make any fucking sense to yeah. me. And I just can't stand looking at this shit anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's a, but I would say it's not just one thing, right? It's like a confluence of so many different kinds of biases that we have as human beings. So we've talked about a few of them. Like one is just this general. So like, you know, we talked about for coaches in football, right? There's this idea of like principal agent problem where they're classically like incentivized to keep their job versus actually doing what's optimal. There's like groupthink, right? Which is a huge issue. Like you don't like, so when you learn to count cards, there's basically 
a point where you will split tens and you'll split tens against a six and a five typically. And it's when the count's over a, a pretty high threshold. And so the first time I ever split tens, I remember being like, even like I'm looking at this and the math is so clear, but even me, like, you know, this, like whatever believer in numbers and I didn't want to split the tens. And it's because I'm looking around and everyone at the table is like mad at me. They're going to be really mad at me if I split these tens. Like, and I had $8,000 on the table and they're just like, what are you, what are you doing? Right? Like, but they don't know what I know. They don't know. I if I could sit down and maybe explain it to them, they would believe me. And so I'm trying to make a decision to avoid conflict, which is the ultimate and like group think. And like, if you think about just how you want to change things in the kitchen or how you want to change things in the restaurant, like it's hard because like people aren't going to agree with you. They're going to be like, no, we've been doing it this way forever. It's fine. You know, like there's no, that, no, so, no answer gets me more upset than when I ask, well, why are you doing it this way? It's like, this is just how we've done it. Right. I fucking, I can't. Yeah. But it's classic group think like, and, and you see it. And, and like, if I explain this to people, they'll get it. But then they'll do it. They'll fall for it. And you just have to continue to call people out. And if you have like, if you're armed with more of these stories specifically from industries outside of this, of your normal industry, like if you get people out of what whatever problem they're so holed up in and make them think about sports or gambling. And that's why I love using these as analogies to talk about it. Um, you know, another word is, another one was like process versus results, right? Like the idea that if a team goes for it on fourth down and they get it, that was a good decision. If they don't get it, it was a bad decision. But that's BS, right? right? The decision is independent of the result. And that's a really hard thing for people to, you know, to understand because we're very results-driven, right? Like at the end of the day, what, sure, it was the right decision, but if you didn't get it, you're going to lose the game. So who gives a shit, right? But the, the idea is that if you keep making the right decisions, you're ultimately going to yield the best results over time versus like continuing to make bad decisions, which is like, we've been doing it this way forever. But at what point does challenging convention become convention, right? That thing that you're challenging. Like at some point, there's a tipping point where people are like, oh yeah, we should do it this way. Well, it's happened in the NBA, right? Three-point shooting. That's the classic one where everyone's shooting threes now, right? Except for what, the Knicks or something. I don't know who, but like the general concept now is that people understand that, that three is more than two and they should probably take more three-pointers. So that happens. It's, it's, it happens. And what happens to the competitive advantage when everyone does it then? You got to move. You got to move to something else. Do right? you think then people will stop shooting threes and then go back to low post play? Well, I mean, I think like in basketball, we're going to see it over the next while, right? And you could look at like someone like Daryl Morey, who I have tremendous respect for. Like, what is he doing? What are some of the other teams that are on the cutting edge? What are they trying to do? I think everyone's kind of looking for that. And people look at like what Popovich did and they try to understand like that team was taking some more mid-ranges. They were trying to play slower. There were like things he was, I think, experimenting with. Um, I really don't know what it's going to be in the NBA, but it, it, it's interesting, right? Just to see, figure out what will happen. Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. They got Aaron Franklin right now. They've had Thomas Keller and Gordon Ramsay. Alice Waters is on there. And I'm a huge fan of all of them, obviously, but Aaron Franklin giving you tips of how to barbecue just a little bit better and to smoke and just the whole mise en place you need to do this is just amazing because who gets that kind of information? 
With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. What's interesting and fantastic for me is I don't need to just watch the culinary programming, which is terrific. I can look at basically anything that's a creative pursuit, and they're going to have someone best in class. For example, I'm a big fan of Brian Grazier. He's made basically every movie or TV show that you've liked over the years. And he's got episodes about like basically thinking like Brian Grazier. It's pretty amazing. And the list is unbelievable. People that are experts in their field, Masterclass has it all. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 15% off Masterclass. And now, back to the show. There's this example, and I don't know if it even makes sense, but a few years ago at Ma Pesh or Midtown Restaurant, I saw what the future was with labor and all these things and how people wanted to eat. And I was like, you know what? Let's just get rid of fucking servers because I love dim sum. I think it's the most brilliant fucking service of a restaurant ever because it's labor efficient. You can clear tables incredibly fast because they got like a cart from Staples and they're just clearing shit off the table right in. It doesn't fucking matter. It's just we're here to fucking eat and eat something delicious in and out done. We don't even have a a menu. You're going to write your shit down. You're going to give it to me. It's so brutally efficient. It gives me joy when I go to a good dim sum shop. And I'm like, Fuck me. Of course the Chinese figured this shit out. They figured shit out before anyone else. This is just the fucking model. And I was like, guys, let's just blow this whole fucking thing up and let's just put everything on carts. Right. We don't even have to call tickets anymore. We don't have to wait for an ordering system. We're going to fire food depending on the day, the time, the weather. We're going to have some idea of what we need to fire on the menu. We're just going to make 10 orders, put it on the cart, and send it out. I was like, this is it. We just fucking did it. We're, we're going to figure out how to right. finally win on a way that no one's ever done before. And I couldn't get everyone to buy in. They just thought it was so fucking insane that they couldn't do it. Oh, so they're like, we did it like one day and then the next day, like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to put some stuff on the menu and people are going to order all the cart. And we're only going to do two carts instead of doing the whole fucking menu. I still want to test this out. I know I'm right. But here's the fucking crazy thing. Around that time, I think completely independent of us, a restaurant in San Francisco, State Bird Provisions. Yeah, I was about to mention that. Does it? Yeah. And I'm like, motherfuckers. Like, to my own team, I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Like, God bless that someone else is doing it. I'm so happy. Yeah. But this works because on paper, on the science of it, makes sense. We're, We're actually turning all our inefficiencies into strengths. Right. And we don't have to fucking worry about these things. I mean, I think the at least at State Bird and just generally dim sum, one of the best things about it is it's teaching people to eat the right way, which is to be able to try a lot of different things and eat family style. So it's like that to me is like the core of what's the, the one thing I would say that I don't always love the efficiency of dim sum because dim sum is never relaxing. When you go get dim sum, (laughs) like immediately you're like, boom, you don't sit down and you get like, you're like, I don't want to miss, I don't want to, and I don't want to like, and if you happen to be in a situation where like the shitty cart comes by when you're really hungry, you actually over end up overeating like some of the shittier right, dumplings right, right, that right. you just because you don't want to wait for the better stuff. But like 
I think the dining experience at State Bird is unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable what they've done. Yeah. And I wish that, you know, listen, we've been very successful. But I guess when you talk about Daryl Morey and one of my great regrets is I never actually went fully into sports because I love sports so much. I was like, well, I can open up restaurants like it's a sports franchise. Right. <laughs> and I'm looking at all these things that are successful in restaurants or concepts that are traditionally now seen as stupid or uncool. Right. And because the barrier of entry is simply because does someone think it's cool or not? I know that no one wants to do it. Like, for instance, we're in a shopping mall. We're in Kaui. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons that people can criticize it. Where else are you supposed to open a restaurant these days? In the Lower East Side, where every fucking new cool restaurant's trying to be? Right. The cool has always been the uncool at some point. And I look at Asia. If you ask anyone in Japan or Taipei, can a great restaurant be on the fifth floor of a shopping mall? Everyone would be like, of course. Yeah. Because they don't give a fuck. They're agnostic to it. They just want good food. Yeah, we have this preconceived bias that good food can't be somewhere in, in America. It's got to be in a traditional four walls of a fancy restaurant in, or a cool hip location. I yeah. just look at this as like patently stupid. There's just too many ways that we think about food. Like, I'm always like uh, apprehensive of talking too much about it because I don't want people to steal my ideas right. too, right? But it's execution, right? Like it's not ideas, it's execution. It's both. Like what makes you successful is execution at the end of the day. <laughs> I think it's mainly because we also think we're playing with house money too. Right. Like that's always been my philosophy. Well, that's and that's why you're willing to take risks, right? Is because you're playing with the house money in your mind, right? You've created a situation where, as we talked about earlier, it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes because you're playing with house money. So that that allows you to be even more successful operationally. Like every time we think that as a company, we get conservative with our decision-making, we always make the worst fucking decisions. Yeah. It's always got to be fucking balls to the wall almost, right? Yeah. One thing I was thinking about when we were just talking about this idea of of why people are bad generally at, at like change and things like that and innovation is like just how long your your perspective is on success. So one of the things when I was at Twitter that I think that we struggled a lot with and every public company struggles with is that every quarter you have to give a earnings call and you have to explain things. And so you make this, and at Twitter, there's a ton of people that have a lot of their net worth in Twitter stock because that's you know how we get paid a lot of it. And so if the stock fluctuates a lot based on that earnings call, you've fucked with a lot of people's net worth. And so that idea of making decisions quarter to quarter Every public company is subject to that. And I remember when I was talking to Sam Hinkey about what he's going to do next in his career, he talked about the challenges with basketball. He said, you know, it's basically like having 82 earnings calls a year, right? And, and that is really hard to make good decisions when you have that sort of fixated on you. Now, from your standpoint, it's like, how do you give your staff and your the idea of, of having a long-term perspective and how they think about their own performance or how they think about like the restaurant's performance? How do you get them not to think about every service as, you know, either a failure or success or every dish they make? Like, how do you get them to think a little bit more long-term so they're not afraid of doing something that might be a little unconventional? That's an amazing question. I don't know if I have the right answer to that because my challenge with teaching my team right now, as I am not the CEO anymore, Marguerite Mariscal is, I'm sort of more weirdly uh, being a coach to these guys. Um, 
my biggest fight is two things. Fighting inherited success, which is essentially fight like the same thing as inherited wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Like they expect every day to be successful like it was yesterday, which is fucking insane to me. Right. <laughs> like, people forget that people are coming in here because of reputation or whatever, but like, no, like you can't do the same thing. That's exactly right. what you cannot do. That's impossible. It's so hard to convince people to still be hungry, right? The second thing that is sort of tied to that, and I'd love it if you have any answers to this, because they only worry about the short term. Short term and long term is a paradox for them to hold in their head simultaneously, and they can't do it. Not that they can't. It takes time. It takes a long time for people to realize, wait, like, if I'm going to do this, it's basically just enough for me to be successful or just enough for me to get my bonus. But I, I've used this, uh, this analogy to cooks and chefs. Don't be Russell Westbrook. Right. And I, there are other examples I've given over the years to people that don't give a shit about basketball. But it's like, don't be Carmelo Anthony. Right. Like, it's great. That's what I think the short-term play is. Right. The long-term play yeah, is… Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know if there's ways to compensate them more from a long-term… Because, like, people in the restaurant industry are compensated very, let's say, hourly, right? And generally, it's, it's… Well, that's one thing. I think one of the reasons why we're trying to grow is so we can compensate and change the whole pay structure. Right. For, I think that'd be a good place to start right. because you get people thinking a little bit more long-term. Maybe try to create some way that incentivizes them… In the same way that you're incentivized, right? Like you're not necessarily incentivized on one individual thing, but more on just overall how the restaurant does or, or the restaurant business, your, your whole business does, right? And no, I, I, but like, I want them to know what to win, right? Right. Like, I mean, that's so it's like the balancing like short term feedback loops with like long term yeah. perspective. I think it's, it's not easy, but I think it's good that you're. You're thinking we, about we it. have a we have a great human resource team, and we're getting better at trying to set goals. And these are the things that you can accomplish, and you right, can it's like mastery all and things. all that kind of stuff, like yeah. Maslow's pyramid of needs, and that's like a huge, it's a huge thing to motivate people because it's all real. Like the idea of mastery and purpose and autonomy, it really does dictate whether people are successful and how how they do. And that's one reason why, like, we've been giving so much autonomy to the chefs of each restaurant, like Unjo. She's cooked at some of the best restaurants in the world. She's worked at more three Michelin star restaurants than most people I know. And she's deserved the right to run her own kitchen. And then Sean Gray. And then the next level is like, oh, you're now owner and partner and all these things. And it takes time and we're getting better at it. But I still haven't figured out how to explain paradox to people. That to me is the hardest thing because it's just too hard to understand. Like why? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that the fact that you're trying so hard to do it is is important. And I, I think going back to Ugly Delicious, I think one of the things that I really am impressed by you is the constant struggle that you have to try to understand things. And, you know, like when I think about the stuffed episode, one of the things that I loved about it at the end was just this notion that you're like, well, maybe because they like care more about ingredients, like that's actually like pretty valuable and pretty important (laughs) because I know like, you know, my parents made dumplings. We made dumplings, but we didn't care what we put in there. We're buying like pork from the, you know, ground pork from the supermarket. And so just that idea of your personal change in, you know, like what, what they call it is like Bayesian. Like you have a like you go in with priors, you go and you changed your priors. That's like a very valuable thing. So I think like, the more that you continue to like 
exemplify that behavior amongst your staff, the more that they're going to be willing to sort of think that way. But I'd argue, like, thank you for that. I, I'm going to take some compliments, but it's still hard. For example, in the Ugly Delicious the fried rice episode, and I got a lot of flack for it because I, I chose not to eat the dried deer tendon. Right. Uh, and people, I got a lot of critics for saying, like, you can't talk about this and, and like, spit something out. That's disrespectful. And I could have easily have edited that out. Right. But partly is to show that, like, I'm still learning and right. I'm not perfect and no one's right. born perfect. And right. I hope that one day I will have the ability to, to eat this without looking like an imbecile. Right. But I just feel, again, this boils down to this human nature. I just think that people are fundamentally allergic to looking like an idiot or feeling any pain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, again, like, I think that that's the, when I think about myself, you know, like, when I, I mean, I've made a ton of mistakes in my life, you know, and the ability to, like, think about that in the lens of, of like, learning. And, like, the other thing that I think about, like, so I was born super conservative upbringing, like, Chinese immigrants, my parents were Republicans and that's are like, my parents. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, then you work at Twitter and you live in San Francisco and, and all of the stuff that's happening in the world. And you start to really change how you think about the notion of, of being liberal versus being Republican, not from a politics standpoint. I don't really care about politics. I don't think about politics that much, but what I think about is like how we are as, as humans and how we treat each other as humans. And like, I just feel like that, notion is something that I've changed a lot and how I think about that now than I, than I used to. And part of it is having kids. Part of it is just what's happening in our world right now. But that's why like a show like Ugly Delicious is so important because it's telling that story in a, okay. So Michael Lewis, the writer is a pretty good friend of mine. And when he wrote The Blind Side, it was right after Talent is Overrated and Outliers were written, right? And both all those books are basically about nature versus nurture. But the one that's the most important is The Blind Side because it's told in this just amazing accessible way where it's not a fucking business book hitting you over the head with like a, a comment about about like some really highbrow notion that like talent might be overrated. And, you know, when I read that, I told Michael, I said, this is the sort of most important nature versus nurture story there is out there. And hopefully people understand that and they don't think of it as just, you know, a Sandra Bullock movie or something like that. And hopefully they realize that there's like a really important underlying theme here. Yeah. And to tie it back into how we started with MSG, you know, <laughs> I will die on this fucking cross of MSG to the point where I'm just going to start fucking making it, right? Because right. like, fuck it. Like, I don't care anymore. But fact that I'm trying to present, uh, not just me, and many others are trying to present other avenues and perspectives that maybe you have an opinion that's wrong. And having the ability to back it up with data, even though people that are anti-MSG feel that the data is wrong, at some point, like having the ability to be open to new things and to say, I was wrong about something if I can unlock that and people can unlock that with MSG and other things, like this is a lot of our world's problems right now. Right. And when your wife watches Ugly Delicious or is like, you know, not just your wife, like everyone I know for the most part, like I have this conversation almost every time I have dinner, people that are very smart, highly intellectual, like, oh, I didn't know that. Right. If they don't know this, what else do they not know? What else do they inherently yeah. inherit that's wrong? But what you're saying ultimately, and this is like, 
at Twitter, one of the like really great things about Twitter is there, there's these company values that we have, and and they're really the people there believe in them, and one of them is to seek diverse perspectives, right? And so I was with in Chicago recently with a buddy of mine who is the most conservative, and he used to work in politics, and he's just so conservative. And you know, I asked him, I said, "Have have you seen when they see us?" And he's like, "Oh, I read an article about it, and it was in some fucking conservative thing that you know basically said like, oh, they were still guilty and all this kind of stuff." And he sent me the article, I read it, and I'm like, "Well, if you just read what you want to read or what is in your little bubble, you're never gonna like." have your priors changed, right? So that key to being changing your priors is at the like the core of what's so important and exactly what you said in like understanding or what's happening in our world. Like if we could just get everyone to, you know, like this whole mass shooting thing, right? Is it mental illness or is it gun control? Well, probably is a little bit of both or a lot of bit of both. And like ultimately why don't we just go to solution space rather than like actually like arguing about like what it is and why don't we try to all fix this? I think we can all agree that it's probably a bad thing that we have mass shootings. So let's try to figure out like how we prevent them. And mental illness is a big thing. Like my oldest sister committed suicide, right? And that notion, that's a tough thing to think about. But yeah, I mean, gun control, like to say like we shouldn't do anything with that, that just seems crazy to me. And like, again, I'm not, really politically driven, but I'm like humanity driven in that I want to see us solve some of these problems. And like, you know, one of the things you think about with China, right? And and when I quit my job, we, I sold a company to, to Yahoo, wrote a book, and then I went and I toured and spoke in about 40 different countries. And in that time, I hadn't traveled a lot outside the US at that point. And I was pretty I would say close-minded. I thought, you know, obviously the U.S. is the best and all this kind of stuff. And then I went and I traveled around like Asia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, North Africa. I went to places like Pakistan and whatnot. And, you know, in that time that I traveled to those places, I really woke up in terms of like how I thought about just the world being very much bigger than the United States. And I think it's important for people to to try to challenge themselves. Cause I think before then I, I wasn't challenged about like how we think about our country. It was so, it was so myopic for me mm. to me, like this whole idea of getting people to change the way that they think or to like understand that, that things may be, I, I think it's so hard. And like the fact that, you know, you are fighting it in your, in your business you know, I, I don't know. Like, it's it's probably the hardest thing. It's, it's getting so someone to, to change their priors. That's like that's like the. <laughs> there's a guy that I worked with at Twitter. His name's Adam Messenger, and he was a CTO there for a while. And he used to talk about people changing their priors, and that's like a really big thing. And like I, he says, it that's a very you know statistical way to say it. But just the idea of getting people to change the way they think is is it's powerful. And that's like you know at the core of what really got to me about Ugly Delicious was it's all about like changing your priors, kind of. Well, I appreciate it. I, I could talk to you forever. I'd love to have you back on the podcast. And I wanted very much not to talk about everything you did that's covered in the book and the movies and everything you've yeah. done because I think that like you have all this other shit going on. Yeah. Uh, what else do you have going on? So for listeners, yeah, I mean, if people want to hear, I do a podcast called Bet the Process with a guy by the name of Rufus Peabody, who is a big Redskins fan. So unfortunate. Yeah, you guys can share that together. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's essentially what I'm working on right now. So I'm in between like permanent jobs. So we'll see what I do next. Do you think you'll ever go back to just consulting or working 
solely for a sports team again? No, I don't think. I mean, I think that I would only work for a sports team if a really close friend of mine like bought a team and wanted me to come work with them on it. Do you think that like say a basketball team were like, we want you to be the general manager? Well, I don't think they would just because I don't think that I have, I think I would actually have to go work as a, Right, assistant GM for a while before being a GM. So maybe someone says to me like, hey, it'd be really interesting to have you. But again, like I probably would only do it if I was really close with the owner because, or the ownership groups, because ultimately like then you get into situations where they're not allowing you to execute like all these kind of like thought processes that we're talking about. All right, we'll get you out. I'm not even gonna talk about betting or anything like that. We're done. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Well, that was my conversation with Jeff Ma. Again, I was thrilled to have him on because when I read that book, Bringing Down the House, I was so excited that, again, it was an Asian-American, a Chinese-American that was doing this and fucking up the system. And to be honest, I was a little bit broken up. The fact that he was not a Chinese-American in the movie 21, which sucked. But getting to meet him in person and getting to see what he's done, because I love gambling I love analytics, even though I'm shitty with numbers personally, how he thinks about things and the fact that anyone can do what he did with the balls, basically, of gambling. This was one of the, my most favorite podcasts because of everything we spoke about. So hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Uh, I'm in LA right now, and it's uh, very good to always speak with and do this podcast with Isaac Lee. Isaac Give me an Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question, but we're changing it up this week. Last week, I said we're going to copy something out of the great journalist, podcast guest, Mina Kimes, who answers five-star rating questions on the iTunes page for this podcast on ESPN. Anyway, if that made any sense, uh, Isaac, shoot, this is something on the podcast uh, comments section. All right. So this is a question from ACMCOVT. Thank you for the five stars. And it's about something that you've talked about a lot. The question goes, do you think culinary school makes sense for someone who is older and wants to transition from a different career to becoming a chef, especially if no debt could be incurred because of being able to use savings to pay for it? Or do you recommend instead trying to get an entry-level job at a good restaurant instead and build up experience? And how would you recommend getting said entry-level job as a 40-something person who is a good, quote, home cook and a voracious reader of cookbooks and techniques, but has no restaurant experience? Thanks for reading and thanks for the podcast. Isaac's voice. So nice. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that question, A-C-M-C-O-V-T. Um, I've spoken at length about culinary school. While it is good for some people, I think at this moment in 2019, moving forward with the technology and online learning ability, I don't know if you need this. You don't have to go to culinary school. I'm always reminded of the Goodwill Hunting movie when Matt Damon's like, you could have learned all this in like $8 in library late fees. Like you can just do this all on your own, but it's nice to have the structure. I have nothing against culinary schools. Like, I think it's great to have higher learning of any kind. My problem with culinary schools is the price and the fact that it is largely unregulated and goes under the radar of any sort of governmental oversight because, you know, you can get student aid and anything like this. And I think if that is the case, I think that the numbers 
that result into the failure and attrition rate of being a culinary school graduate is incredibly high. Again, I think my gut tells me it's over 90%, probably around 95% after five years. And one of the things about cooking school that is always compelling to people is that it's in a world of continuing meaninglessness and absurdity, it's nice to find meaning in something you love to do, working with your hands. But people forget that the culinary industry at large, particularly in America right now, is a very new industry. The fact that people care about cooking at all just never happened before. So I went to cooking school in 99 and 2000. And right after the first dot-com crash, I think half my class were career changers. Some had cashed out and they wanted to do something that was fun. And you see a lot of people in cooking school that are like that, that are independently wealthy and they have no desire to ever enter the profession. But most of the people that you see in cooking schools, in my opinion, the people that I met over the years, they're, they skew younger. They're 18 to 22 years old or they had a year or two of work experience and they realized they want to do something else. And one of the reasons why I think it, and I'm trying really hard not to say anything that, not to get me in trouble, but I don't want to discourage anyone of any age group to do anything that they want to do, number one. And that's the beautiful thing about cooking, particularly in a restaurant, when it's done well, it is a merit-based system. And there should be no discrimination at all on your sexual orientation, your skin color, age, religion, none of that matters. But when you work in a restaurant, one of the things that can be hard is the hours and the pace. And listen, I'm 42 years old right now. I'm telling you, man, my fucking knees hurt. My arthritis flares up on rainy days or just who knows. Like, I can't keep up the pace myself when I was younger. And I can't speak for anyone else, but a lot of my friends, there's wear and tear. And the thing about cooking, at least everyday restaurant cooking, it's an endurance match. It's a test of like, you know, your willpower to just endure pain and uncomfortable situations. It's a very physical job. And like, it doesn't always have to be, but depending on your station, if you're working AM saucier, like, and you're making traditional stocks and jus, like you could be carrying thousands of pounds of, of bones per day up and down stairs. And that there's a physical actual barrier. What I'm really trying to say is, there is a sense of athleticism to cooking. And I have seen too many people that have started to spend all of their retirement funds to go to cooking school because they want to open up their own restaurant. And that really makes me mad. I'm not saying that you can't, but I don't know if the return on your investment is worthwhile. And there are a lot of people that I meet that go to cooking school because they're sold a lie that cooking school is necessary for them to open up a restaurant. And I don't believe that. I also don't believe you need to work in a restaurant and to build experience. You should just get an entry-level job. And my recommendation to this, this person that sent in this question and being as long-winded as I possibly can about this, apologies, cook at home, cook as much as possible. That should never change. Get a dishwashing job first and foremost. <laughs> don't worry about cooking. If you are entering this profession late in life and you don't want to go to cooking school, you can get a job washing dishes just about anywhere. And if you are comfortable working as a dishwasher for, you know, three to six months, you can always work for free. I certainly did. Or, I don't know, observe how things happen. You can just learn through osmosis and practice, and that's how one way to do it. But 
dishwashing job is one of the best ways for you to see if you should be working in a restaurant to begin with because that repetition and a lot of people, I think, drop out of the restaurant profession because they don't understand how fucking repetitive working in a restaurant is. It's about cleaning. It's about prepping and organizing and just repetitive shit over and over and over again. And you almost rarely cook. And if you can wash dishes with gusto and you're entering in your 40s as this person is, then that's what you do. And you can go home and just be, as you say, a voracious reader of cookbooks and techniques. Because if you love washing dishes, you're going to learn how to do all that other shit in a restaurant. And I'm genuinely trying to leave this on a positive note. There's a French chef called Thulier, T-H-U-I-E-L-I-E-R, I believe. He wound up getting three Michelin stars. He didn't start cooking until he was 38, 39, or 40. And most people would say that's crazy. But he wound up being very successful because he did a lot of different things. He was in real estate. He was sort of this Renaissance man, highly educated. And he decided he wanted to have a career change. And he's probably the benchmark for someone that entered the culinary game late. And I think he started cooking, what, 1950s or 1960s. The reason he's important is Wolfgang Puck, the famous, one of the most successful chefs of all time from Austria, he worked under Thulier. He was one of his chefs. And that's how this lineage comes through to present day, particularly in Los Angeles, right? So I think I could have gotten that wrong. I don't believe so, but I've had uh, a few older cookbooks of Thulier and you know, he was a different kind of chef. He was able to apply his world knowledge to having a competitive advantage over the chefs that only stayed in the kitchen. So there's always hope. There's always options. First and foremost, you got to ask, do you want to incur that kind of debt to go to cooking school? And if you have the disposable income, sure, go try it out. I'd recommend don't pay it in a lump sum ahead of time. The cooking schools will probably tell you to pay it all at once, pay it in installments. And um, my better recommendation is, Travel the world and eat, and then you can just study everything through books or through online as well. But that if that still is not enough for you and you want to see if cooking in a restaurant is for you, wash dishes. Anyway, since that was so long, we'll be doing one question. Keep on sending them in to either the iTunes podcast page where you rate or uh, at askdave at majordomomedia.com. Send in those questions. Uh, Stay tuned for next week. Thank you again, guys, for all the support.